making sure that people get used to testing their color contrast values is is a really important thing for everyone to sort of get, especially for designers to get a handle on. Um, if you're already designing in grayscale like you are, then you're miles ahead of that game. Um, but then you just have to make sure that when you're doing the painting afterwards that you're not making any, any mistakes. Um, or causing any inadvertent effects um, because the people that get hung up on the idea, they're like, oh, well, I can't use this color that I want. It's like, you can use the color. Just make sure you're careful in its relation to text. Hello, friends. My name is Kirill and you're listening to my UX career podcast. On this podcast, I'm sharing my personal thoughts on how to start a career path in UX, how to grow your skills and become a better designer. Also, I have conversations with other designers and design leaders trying to show that there are many different perspectives and opinions on the key questions about UX career. So if you're a UX designer or considering becoming one, this podcast will get you better prepared for finding a job in UX. Opinions expressed on this podcast are my own and do not necessarily reflect the views of my current or previous employers. And don't forget, this is just one human's point of view. Also, if you're interested in UX career insights and um, some key learnings from my experience, uh, you can sign up for my newsletter about UX career. Uh, go to newsletter.uxcareer.co. Now, back to the episode. Today, I'm talking to Janice, uh, who is a web accessibility expert and specialist in at Central One Credit Union in uh, Vancouver, BC. We talk about his story of getting into the field, why inclusive design is important, and how you can start learning the basics. We also talk about the challenges of retrofitting existing internal tools at different companies to satisfy accessibility requirements and a lot more. Also, Janice shares a bunch of easy tips and tools for designers who want to create accessible products and experiences. We got so much content that we couldn't fit all the information into one recording, so we are going to get the second session focusing on the future of accessibility in design and common objections against it. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, Janice. Thank you coming. Thank you for coming to the show. Thanks, Carol. I'm really glad to be here. I'll give you the mic, uh, so to say, to, to introduce yourself and explain what you do there. And um, then tell us about the story. How did you get there? Sure. Um, so I um, am a a certified web accessibility specialist. Um, I got my certification through the International Association of Accessibility Professionals. And to be a web accessibility specialist, you have to pass both the certified professional in web accessibility, or sorry, the certified professional in accessibility core competencies uh, exam. And then you get that designation. And then you also have to pass the web accessibility specialist uh, exam and you get that designation. Um, and, and so I've been working at Central One uh, for a little over five years, and uh, my primary responsibilities are to um, review designs and do uh, a testing of the final built product. Um, I start off, uh, preferably I, I start off at the beginning when we're doing the design process uh, to review any issues that may immediately occur and to give the, the developers a bit of a heads up in terms of what components might be challenging to develop based on the kind of interface that you're designing. So something that has like a slider might need certain specific things and it's better it, and much cheaper if you identify those challenges ahead of time uh, than if you build it and then audit it after the fact. That said though, I have done a lot of extensive 
um, after the fact auditing uh, of a system. And that is a, a big challenge because if you're auditing like an entire say banking uh, platform, um, it's a lot of work um, to go from beginning to end of it. Um, and in my job, I use screen readers a lot because that's really what you're working towards um, is the screen reader output across different uh, platforms. So I test on Mac, Windows, uh, iOS, and Android, depending on what we're building at any given time. Mm -hmm. um, screen readers it would work only for people who can hear, right? Uh, what about Braille um, keyboards or output devices? They work with that too. That's actually one of the great things is that you as a designer don't have to think about Braille at all. Um, it's all handled by the screen reader and it translates it to what's called a refreshable Braille display, um, which uh, blind and deafblind people use to read content. Um, and then uh, the screen, they use this in the screen reader. The interesting thing is that some blind people still have some vision, so they may actually even just extremely zoom out the, the display. Um, so um, that's another sort of additional design challenge is that you um, have to make sure that um, things work and read properly if someone has really magnified what they're seeing. And thankfully, in a world of responsive design, that's a lot easier to do than it was before in the sort of early days of HTML. Um, that kind of zooming was a real problem. Um, but now, um, with the way that uh, even iOS and Android are handling different screen sizing, it's actually a lot easier for a designer to to design a flexible system um, that works with any font sizing or anything else that the user might be changing within their their settings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That definitely can throw a curveball um, <laughs> at the design if you don't think about these things. It's it's amazing once you zoom the text to the largest size how everything breaks. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And you can control it, right? So you can actually you can block it, but it's definitely would violate the accessibility and guidelines. You shouldn't be blocking it. And at the same time, because the, especially the way that there are different screen sizing with even just within iOS, like the going from the iPhone mini all the way up to uh, the large iPad Pro, um, you, it works best if you try and steer towards the traits of the individual platforms because the, the in iOS in particular, you get a lot for free for just using their own component. I'm curious to, to hear a bit more about how it's structured. How do you really partner with UX designers at Central One? Uh, how does this really collaboration work? Uh, well, quite often uh, I'll get brought in as they're doing their design process. Um, and so I'll do a pass where I'll point out maybe someplace where um, they're, uh, they have like a too light a font color, um, which is often used. Designers really love to use like a sort of lighter gray yes. uh, or any sort of like reduced opacity color to yeah, yeah, de-emphasize yeah. a secondary piece of information. Um, and the reality is that uh, even though I'm very experienced at doing this, it, I can't tell quite often. There's some things that are quite on the line. And the best way to do it is to use a, a tool where you check the color values against each other. So you check the font color against the background color. Um, and you want to make sure that you're past the, the thresholds that, uh, that are set out in WCAG because that's what, the, what you're working towards at the end. The, the other thing I check for uh, is that to make sure that they're not using color as a way of, of expressing meaning alone. So like say in the case of like an error state, um, if you turn the, the text red, 
that actually doesn't pass um, because it, you need to have a secondary characteristic. Um, changing the color of something um, to indicate fail or pass does not actually meet the WCAG requirements. You need something like a symbol or something else to make sure that the user uh, understands that that has changed, largely because there are some people with color blindness um, or other types of vision issues where that's just going to be imperceptible to them. Um, so you, you should never assume that just by changing the color of something that the user will understand the meaning of what you intend. Yeah, I try to use, like, I try to kind of at least minimize the risk of this by um, uh, designing grayscale and uh, kind of, at least from my experience, that gives me additional input into how things like would work without relying on color. Um, especially like with just like even besides the accessibility, but also visual contrast um, and kind of drawing attention to the right things. Um, but yeah, that, that's definitely a good tip. That's a good practice. The, I, I recommend that most designers do that. Leave color to the variant. That's not like you're, you're painting walls at that point. You're really more concerned with structure and grayscale is a great way to start that way. Exactly. And like you're kind of designing for the case when a person cannot see the color as you are used to. And um, like I mean, like without even without this layer, the visual layer, it should still work um, and be accessible and usable. Let's uh, let's touch on your story. I'm curious to hear why did you even go to this field? So you mentioned that you have been working at um, at Central One in this role for about five years. So what? Like, how did you start in in design world itself, and what led you to the accessibility uh, problem space? Sure. Um, so I I have a weird path into design. Um, I came from uh, film studies. Uh, I, I particularly specialize in um, animation studies. And uh, when I was doing my master's degree in, in film studies, I started doing web development uh, for an online film journal that we had uh, that we'd created for uh, by our the grad students. And I found that I really enjoyed that aspect of the design and building and everything. Uh, and so when I left grad school, um, uh, I was talking to a friend and he was like, you know, we're looking for someone to do user experience studies and we're having a hard time finding people who can both grasp and document what is happening. And he's like, do you want to try it? And I was like, sure, why not? I mean, it sounds interesting. I, um, and um, I, so I started doing that work. Uh, and then as that organization, uh, which was uh, performance by design, started doing more of its own design work instead of just doing user uh, experience testing. Um, I, that's when I started getting more involved in the design side of things. And at that point, the organization um, really needed someone to focus on accessibility uh, to make sure that we understood the requirements from the United States and the UK. And they're like, you're a nerd. Do you want to learn about this stuff? And I was like, yeah, of course I'm a nerd. I love it. Yeah, I, I, I'm very curious about this. Uh, and so that's when I got started with uh, the WCAG 1.0 back in like before 2008 when the second one was released. And it it blew my brains out. Like it just, it shattered my perception of how we were doing things because it meant that I suddenly started to realize how many things we were taking for granted uh, in our designs and how we needed to make sure that um, in particular that we were considering like the use of color, um, the use of, of uh, of text formatting in certain specific cases, like um, that you shouldn't just left and right justify text because that's actually a huge problem for people with disability with dyslexia. And so it was in seeing that like, oh, left justifying everything is is good design. Um, there are some cases where like the they would say like never center justify, but like some would be okay. But it's like again, it's up to the design and the moment of like determining where 
um, that may be appropriate. And so it is a, it is it, the nice thing is, and the thing I really like about it is that it's, it's constantly presenting you with fun and interesting design challenges. You're always having to consider um, what users are doing, which is really the, at the core of UX, but it's like the most hardcore version where it's like, you have to talk to these groups of people who have very distinct needs. Um, and uh, it, coming from a user research background, I love the fact that like suddenly it's like, oh no, we now have to go find out specifically where we're failing these other people. Um, and so the that in itself also then presents a huge set of challenges of like uh, finding uh, people who can do this kind of testing for you and learning about their experiences and what their needs are um, and really trying to bake that into your own process. So this was PBD, you said? Um, that Performance by Design PBD, mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah, what out of we, Vancouver. Yeah, what were we doing after that? Uh, from there, I went on to Boeing um, and where um, I was primarily doing uh, more sort of writing work. And then eventually I, I moved over uh, into being a business analyst because I missed doing more sort of design and UX work. Um, and at, at Boeing at that time, uh, Boeing Aero Info uh, out of Richmond, the all of the design and UI was actually controlled um, at the BA position. Um, and so that's where I moved over. Um, and since I'd already had experience in requirements gathering and other things, they're like, it's a natural uh, uh, move over. And so I did that work for a couple of years and I found that I was really missing the more sort of, again, user experience, like um, a research part where you talk to users and find out what their needs are. And so when a central one had their role come up for a person dedicated to accessibility, I just jumped on it because um, I really wanted a role that focused on uh, the end user and also like moving away from Boeing, which was more building internal tools to build into products that were more facing the general public. Um, that was a, something I was very interested in and that I was missing from uh, building sort of internal tools for Boeing. Mm -hmm. Uh, does it mean that it's just your personal preference working on the, I guess, consumer-facing um, products versus internal business-facing products? Or does it mean that for the internal products, you don't have to think about accessibility? It's a, it's a, it's a trick question. <laughs> well, so that's actually a really fascinating question because the challenge that we have in accessibility in the way that it's presented to us from a legal perspective. Um, so like AOTA, the uh, Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act, um, only emphasizes consumer facing products. Um, there, even though uh, within that law, there's an entire subsection on accessible hiring practices and making sure that uh, your organization can support individuals uh, with disabilities and can hire them as well. The, it didn't require that the systems that are inside those organizations be also accessible. So, uh, and I understand why they might not be able to, to force organizations to do that right away, because just even knowing um, the challenges that certain big organizations have with legacy, uh, legacy software and legacy systems. Um, yeah, it, not everybody can just turn on a dime and suddenly be like, okay, we have a new CMS. Like that, uh, it's understandable that, um, uh, it may be challenging for organizations to, to turn that quickly on that, but I think we'll get there eventually. Um, because again, like you can't, how, how do you have uh, an accessible hiring practice where the company's own internal tools don't have to be accessible? Like that, exactly. that just doesn't work. And at the same time, it is a, a, again, like the sort of human rights aspect of this because uh, disability doesn't just happen from birth. Like the, like in a, 
It could happen that someone is in a skiing accident and suddenly they've lost a lot of their vision, but and they're an accountant. Um, but with technology, they could still do their job. But again, do the systems internal to their to their job support them transitioning, even if it's just like a temporary injury? Um, then yeah, it, it does beg the question of like where is the fine line between um, supporting the general public and supporting uh, all people? Yeah, totally makes sense. And uh, I completely agree that it's just thinking through all the tech debt and all the constraints from the business side of the question, especially with the larger companies, when you have hundreds of different applications like clustered and fragmented uh, within just one company. Um, I think, yeah, it's definitely, and especially as you mentioned earlier, that retrofitting an existing application to, to make it accessible after it's done especially that's built on the older technologies is much harder, effort, bigger effort than um, just doing it from the beginning. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I kind of empathize with the reasoning that it's just like such a big, I guess, cost and effort, and it will definitely take a lot of time for, for all those internal tools um, to get um, updated to, to, to become accessible. But on the other hand, like I completely agree that there is a conflict with the accessible uh, hiring practices. And basically, does it mean that people with accessibility needs uh, cannot work, uh, uh, cannot do this job uh, with, at your company? So that's already human rights um, dilemma. So I, I think that's a good segue into the next question. Uh, so thinking about, like as an expert in this field, uh, if a designer who who has no idea about why they should think about accessible design and accessible practice design practices. How would you really explain them? Why is accessibility important? Well, the first one is that it is a human right um, that we all have the, the right to access information. Um, and the, the amazing thing is that our technology supports this better than ever before. Um, while I, as a person who uh, is very interested in literature and the history of literature, paper produced a lot of problems. <laughs> um, computers, uh, as much as we give them flack for not being sort of as tactile as books, um, are much more flexible because of the inherent multimedia nature of them. And so what we're doing is just really taking advantage of the technology that's now available to us to make sure that everyone can do anything. Um, the, the additional challenge that we have in particular in Canada is that we have a, an aging population. A long time ago, um, like well over five years ago, we crossed the threshold of being a society of seniors versus a society of children. Um, and as, and that's not changing. Like the, the, if you look at the projections for the Canadian population, it's going to be primarily people over the age of 40 um, in the next 20, 30 years. And so once the, that cohort starts to, to increase in numbers, we are starting, we're going to see people demand that systems and processes be much more accessible. And I think that's also why we recently saw laws be brought into place. So like AOTA uh, started, um, it started back in the mid 2000s, I think, and then first the first set of requirements for web accessibility started in 2014, um, and then the most recent set came into effect um, in 2021. And now the federal uh, government is building up their own accessibility uh, requirements and uh, and legal structures. Um, we don't have a clear date on when we'll be fully expected to be uh, uh, compliant to the federal law. But it sounds like by around 2024, um, they should they are going to start requiring that organizations provide some sort of accessibility plan. Um, so even though it may not be a thing that 
you anyone outside of Ontario really has to do at the moment. Um, the federal law is coming and then other provinces are also following suit. I know BC initially had intended to just use the federal law. Um, and in recent uh, months, they've announced that they're going to do a full, their own full law. So um, this is going to be inescapable um, in the next while, um, which is good because at the same time, uh, good accessible design is just good design. Like um, we often forget that the technologies that we use around us often were done, were created for accessibility purposes. So the typewriter was initially an accessibility device. Uh, it was invent the first working typewriter was invented by an Italian guy who wanted to get letters from his lover. <laughs> and so he designed and built her a typewriter so she could write to him. And it's like, that's kind of amazing. <laughs> but at the same time, the utility of a typewriter is immediate once you see one. Um, and things like uh, in the sort of more modern era, predictive text um, that we all like now love and use within our, our uh, devices, that was an accessibility uh, uh, product initially. Email was designed for accessibility uh, purposes initially by um, one of the founding fathers of the internet uh, because he was deaf and uh, his wife was too. And he's like, I can't, we can't call each other in the middle of the day if I need if we need groceries so he built email and I mean that's kind of amazing like that uh, uh, out of personal need they built these things that fully help everybody I mean we all kind of hate email now but that's <laughs> that's not email's fault email didn't do that we did that to us that's true because of my background in user experience testing as, as my sort of foundational moment in uh, in uh, software development um, that like talking to your users is so important. They can help you out in so many ways. And it's shocking to me how organizations are still struggling with um, uh, uh, user experience research in the sense that they don't feel like they need it. Uh, but with accessibility, um, because you're actually trying to meet the needs of, of people um, often who are outside of you, like I'm not a person with who's blind or deaf, um, I have bad vision, so I need glasses, but it's not the same thing um, my, in that my vision can be corrected. Um, and so while I can understand their needs and learn to use a screen reader and navigate and understand what they need, it's another thing entirely to witness an actual blind person navigate a, a web page or any other kind of product because it starts to show you all of the things that you yourself don't know. Um, and all user research is really bound in that. It's just that with accessibility, you have certain additional layers of challenge. Like, um, how do you build an interface that is friendly to a deaf audience? I don't know. <laughs> I, I can't tell you that. They have to tell you that. And so it is a thing where, like, until you talk to those communities, you don't know how they're not being served. You can't pretend to know what they need. The federal law does, will have a requirement for that, which I was really blown away by that the federal law is like putting like that you have to consult with people with disabilities in in as part of your process as part of your plan and that is is fantastic that it's going to be a lot of work thinking about um from the point of view of the person who doesn't know anything but got curious and wants to start digging into this field and can basically learn more how they can produce more accessible and more inclusive experiences and products uh how would you advise they should start? Uh, I'm kind of a weird case in that I fully learned how to write for the web through the web. <laughs> um, and so like, I never took a course or anything. I just 
uh, once I found out that there was such a thing like the web content accessibility guidelines, I just went straight for it and just started reading it and reading it and reading it and reading it. It is a hard document to grasp. Um, the language in it is very specific, um, but it's it does break down over time and it is learnable. And at the same time, if you understand design, you kind of get where they're kind of going. Um, but that uh, the web content accessibility guidelines are more uh, commonly known as WCAG uh, 2.0. Uh, which came out in 2008 and then 2000 and uh, in the last couple of years we have uh, WCAG 2.1 and that comes from the W3C the web accessibility initiative um, that they have uh, and so they create a bunch of requirements um, and other information they have a, a great website that I always point people to for accessibility fundamentals um, where they have a free online course and other essentials they also have perspective videos where they demonstrate for you how people with different disabilities use computers um, because i i'm actually surprised that i get this quite often um, uh, is that there's still a disbelief that blind people can't use a computer um, and so sometimes even like in social media um, where you'll where there's like semi-famous blind people um, who are posting about some of the information, you'll see trolls sometimes show up and be like, how did you read this? And you're like, wow, like this is the this is the hurdle that we still need to cross where like uh, people need to understand that um, that uh, regardless of anyone's physical attributes, they can and should be able to use a computer. Um, I mean, I, I always was amazed by that um, the example of Stephen Hawking and how like his chair just kept getting more and more badass like um eventually like before yes. he died he was doing like eye tracking stuff like he was really on the bleeding edge of what computing could do and having grown up with that example i'm, I'm still shocked that people don't grasp this like there seems to be a, a sort of missing piece that like um somehow uh if you're blind or if you're deaf or you have motor issues that you know this entire world of computers is closed off to you yeah, the, the Hawking um, example is astonishing and very inspiring. And like, it's kind of, especially with the impact he he has had um, on the on the industry, like not just, I guess, accessible devices industry, but um, overall, like the physics and just the science community, I think is just showing that everything is possible. Um, and just we need to be more empathetic and kind of not, not be a troll. <laughs> Yeah, and and that at the same time that the someone's abilities can uh, don't aren't limits anymore. Like you, if if really if you can uh, have access to a computer, you can almost do anything you want now. Like um, Apple did produce a, an amazing video uh, uh, about accessibility and their own accessibility efforts that was made by a woman in a wheelchair using like two buttons. Um, and it's it it's really inspiring in the sense of like yeah it's really on us to make sure that our products meet those people's needs like we're we're the ones who are who are often holding people back it's not them i i like apple because they're also willing to admit when they fail like um i've been an apple watch user from day one and i love the stand ring uh, i love like i you know i try to crush that ring every day <laughs> but they uh, like i think the next year or the year after they're like uh yeah you can now shut that off if you're in a wheelchair <laughs> Um, because they realized that they'd made a huge mistake in overemphasizing the the stand component of it, where it's like people in a wheelchair, like you're telling me to stand up, really? <laughs> like, oh yeah. Um, and then they they went ahead and fixed it, and then on top of that, created specific workouts for people in wheelchairs. And you're like, yeah, 
the acknowledge where you failed and then move forward with how you can better your product for that group. That's a way to to be the pioneer uh, in the space and really show by lead by example. I think yeah, that's very respectable. And you you won't make mistakes. Like I've made mistakes. It's all a learning process. It's all learning. I agree. And uh, so you mentioned about the WCAG. Uh, what else, um, if a person wants to start, like so, they go ahead and um, start reading this. Uh, can they do anything else to? Uh, to guess onboard quicker and um, learn the basics. I would say then um, get yourself uh, an automated scanning tool. The the one I recommend is by DQ, uh, D E Q U E, um, and they have a tool called Axe, um, which is uh, a Chrome extension. Um, so you can just invoke it on any page, and you can scan any page, um, and it'll give you a little report. <clears throat> and from there, you can start to see what is failing. Um, uh, I feel like learning from the open web is a really good place um, because you can see where different failings occur. And the other thing that I think people can do um, is just start to use a screen reader. They're built into all the major platforms. The Microsoft Narrator one is not um, the best, uh, um, but there are free ones for Windows. Like uh, there's one called NVDA, which works great with Firefox. And then there's um, uh, VoiceOver is built into all of the Apple products. Um, like everything from the, the watch to um, the Mac Pro. Um, and so turn those on, start using them. Um, the other simple thing to do is just start tabbing your way through an interface um, because there is the requirement for the visible focus indicator, um, which a lot of organizations really fail at and is actually like one of the hardest design elements to produce for a UI. Um, it, because it can vary so much. Um, depending on the component that you get to, uh, that tabbing really shows you where your user flow is for someone who is using a keyboard. So you don't even have to turn on a screen reader for that because you also want to see what uh, if you do have a, a visible focus indicator, the browser will automatically shove one in. Um, but it's really not recommended for you to use that for your own products because it might not produce the color effects or it might not color balance with the rest of your UI. Um, so it's really something that a uh, designer should learn to start uh, to control um, because it is a it is a major element. And then once and because uh, in the past people have sometimes been like, can we just suppress that blue box? I don't like that blue box. <laughs> um, and you're really not supposed to. Um, but what you're supposed to do is then be like, oh, I don't like that. It's like, well, then make it work. <laughs> yeah. Make it fit your environment uh, and how you want things to work because that really has to be there. Yeah, yeah, and um, I, I started noticing the, these, um, I guess, focus states. Um, not too long ago and like i kind of started noticing that like when websites are i guess devoted enough to to design and implement their custom kind of brand aligned uh, version of this instead of like the standard browser default i guess light blue somewhat like opaque uh, version of it um, and it kind of already kind of a signal to me that this company actually cares about this and they they do prioritize this extra effort that's required for the accessibility. And that's something that anybody can can use and find useful. Like even before I, I really uh, became a sort of expert in keyboard navigation, I was using tab a lot, like uh, just like going through forms and things like tab, even without a screen reader running is really useful. Like, especially if you're a person who likes to keep their hand on their keyboard. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think it's definitely, it's not it's not just for, for people who, who cannot use a mouse. And, and the challenge is that we often, because we think visually that like, 
we often think that something like drag and drop for like file, like to like uh, do a file. It's like, well, how do you do that? It's like, well, you have an affordance for that. If um, if it's a, something that has to involve a drag, then make sure that there's a, a backup button that says, you know, click here to upload file. And that's really all it takes. It doesn't it doesn't have to be a huge intrusion into your, your UI. And also having that backup button might be useful. Like there's different people who might just prefer to just click that instead of doing the drag and drop. Exactly. And thinking about all the different environments that the, this product can be used in, like maybe you're on a bus, on a bus, on a shaky road, and like, how do you really be precise with your dragging and dropping um, activity, especially on mobiles, right? So it's kind of, there are many, I guess, additional benefits to, to having this, I guess, less interactive um, types of uh, interaction, interactions, <laughs> actions. Uh, that would work for for more than just people who who cannot use the drag and drop feature. In general, you should be thinking about most interactions being able to be triggered in both in two ways. Like yours is your primary one, and then your fallback. Yeah, yeah. Plan plan A, plan B. Uh, good call. Okay, so let's uh, let's think about the key learnings uh, because from all your experience, like multiple years of practicing hands on and being actually the owner of accessibility. In a in a company with a pretty complex product suite, I would say uh, how I how I understand the the central one um, yes offerings. I'm sure you have a ton of learnings that you could share. Like what are, I would say, like the key three learnings uh, for for people who are I guess who will be designing for accessible experience. Um, the first one is probably the, to test your colors, um, even though. Uh, we tend to overemphasize the color contrast issues for visual design. It is an important one. Um, and so you like, I think making sure that people get used to testing their color contrast values is, is a really important thing for everyone to sort of get, especially for designers to get a handle on. Um, if you're already designing in grayscale, like you are then you're miles ahead of that game. Um, but then you just have to make sure that when you're doing the painting afterwards, that you're not making any, any mistakes. Um, or causing any inadvertent effects um, because the people who get hung up on the idea, they're like, oh, well, I can't use this color that I want. It's like, you can use the color, just make sure you're careful in its relation to text. That's really the, the, the requirement. The requirement isn't that you can't use color, it's that you um, just need to make sure that your text is legible enough. Um, and you'd be surprised how often legible text fails. And even like from big organizations like uh, Apple, when they did uh, one of their recent redesigns, like stuff got pretty faint. <laughs> really? And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, and then they, you know, they, they fix it. And like, uh, anytime you're kind of doing a big redesign like that, sometimes yep, stuff gets through that maybe shouldn't have. Um, but then they just, you know, at least Apple does change things. Um, they're very, they're shockingly responsive to some of those things, even though everyone kind of jokes about how uh, you know it takes them forever to answer their radars. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the probably the second one is um, start using your keyboard. Um, let go of your mouse. Um, start navigating the screen. Um, that'll really tell you a lot about um, how your user flow actually is. Um, that's probably one of the main ways in which you can grasp the um, the density of screen information because once you start having to like tab like if you're at the top left of a screen and you want to get down to a bottom in, a, a button in the bottom right how many button presses is that going to be <laughs> because once you realize it takes 15 to 20 button presses you're like wow that's a lot <laughs> um and so the the main thing is to understand that some people need to be able to get to those things faster. And the good thing is that we have uh, through like uh, ARIA and other technologies, there are ways to, to do that hop 
better than before, but it's a, it's a thing where like, you have to make sure that you implement it properly. Um, like um, I'm thinking in particular of ARIA landmarks. Uh, and that's, that again, falls on the developer side of things more than the, the UX person, but the UX person still should have an idea of that structure. Um, and lastly, uh, I would probably say like, uh, the thing that things that most designers need to get a handle on is, um, not because they're so used to thinking visually is to think about like, what would this be like if I couldn't see the screen? Um, like if I had to listen to my entire UI, how much time and effort would it take for me to, to get my action completed? And that's where the only way you can really do that is by turning on the screen reader um, and listening to the output from your screen. Um, because then you'll also discover sometimes, sometimes where like, oh, do I need an extra label or an extra description here? Like probably the most classic example of like the missing description that is the most crucial one are for dates. <laughs> in Canada in particular, we have a huge problem where um, day, month, year, or mm -hmm. month, day, year is completely ambiguous, even though we, are, we have a set standard. And so if you're asking the user for a date input, make sure you put an example of what format you want that in. Um, and if you're going to use something like a date picker, make sure that the, that there's also just an input field that the user can enter. Like I know I've been frustrated at times when every time I go to a, a, a date field and it's a date picker and it's for my birthday and it's set to today's date. And I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, it would be so much faster if I could just type in my date because I know that date, like I could type that date with my eyes closed with one hand tied behind my back. Like, like there are certain types of, of personal information that people just know. And sometimes, um, even though something looks better because it's a picker, it's actually slower and not really that much better for everybody. It might be better for some people who are really hardcore mouse users, which, you know, fine, but make sure that you give that affordance to make sure that like, if it's uh, a simple thing, like a, a birth date, um, that you let the user just type it in. Um, pickers, pickers are a challenge, um, especially when navigating by keyboard. So, and it's one of those things that you don't really think about if you're always using a mouse um, until you start having to tab your way through that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good tips, good learnings, um, Janus. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this. And the last question, Janus, uh, where people can find you? Where designers who want to learn more, maybe want to connect with you and ask a few questions. First of all, if you're open to this and uh, if you are, where they can find you? Sure. Um, my Twitter handle uh, is at jsitar, so the first letter of my first name, and then my last name, all is one word. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn with my my full name, Jano Sitar. I'm pretty easy to find. And I'm more than happy to answer any questions or point people to information. Um, I, uh, the uh, Twitter accessibility community is actually pretty uh, robust. Uh, and so there's lots of great resources and people I can point to there, especially if you have more specific needs um, because there are people more focused in design and some people are more focused on development. So um, I can help route you to those types of specialists because they are very much out there and very, very handy. Perfect. Um, I'm glad to hear that you're open to, to connecting and helping other folks. I, I rely on them too. So it's, it's, it's all, uh, it's all give and take. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So that's it for today. Thank you for your time and for all the insights. This was super, super interesting and uh, valuable. Great. Thanks so much, Carol. Thanks for listening. If you want to see more episodes and support this podcast, the best thing you can do is leave a review on iTunes and share with your friends and colleagues. 
If you have specific questions you would want me to answer, you can submit them on the UX Career website. Go to uxcareer.co slash questions. Goodbye, friends.